Thank you so much for giving me the honor and the privilege to be back with you. Uh, I hope this is not the last time at all, but that we can make this a regular affair of uh, me personally being able to be here and our World Venture folks as well. Um, let's just dive into it since uh, the, the time is short and I'm sometimes long-winded. Tim, don't tell them. I have a daughter-in-law named Fiona, and she is delightful. She is just terrific. She's Australian, and she brings a ton of life to our family. And all of our, you know, outside the immediate family relatives just stare at her when she talks. Just keep talking, Fiona. Your Australian accent is incredible. Uh, she gets a kick out of that. But one of the things unique about Fiona is she's a movie freak, and actually I kind of am as well. But Fiona will not, I cannot get her to watch a movie that's in black and white. Yeah, that leaves out a lot of good movies. And I said, Fiona, those are, those are good. Some of those are amazing. She goes, no, no. If it isn't modern, if it isn't up to date, I am not interested. It can't be good. It just can't be. And one day I finally, I don't know how much badly I had to twist her arm, but there was a movie coming on that was one of my old favorites called Charade with Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. And it's a mystery, it's a whodunit taking place in Paris. And you don't know till the very end you know, what in the world happened? And somehow I got her to watch it. And the dialogue and the acting and the story had her captivated. And when the movie was all over and the big surprise was at the end, you know, oh no, who did it? Who was the good guy? Who was the bad guy? She turns to me and she says, now, when that movie was made, people didn't get it, did they? I said, what do you mean? Well, people aren't as smart as we are today. Back then, they wouldn't have gotten this movie, right? It would have been too fast-paced for them. I said, Fiona, who built the pyramids? <laughs> Fiona, the people who lived before our generation or even our century were not dumb. Really? She says, so I love her naivete, and she's learning, she's growing. We're not only going to do a black and white uh, jaunt back in history today, we're going to go back 2,800 years for an incredible lesson. And somebody asked me, well, is this a missions passage? I go, yeah, it is now. <laughs> Let's go for it. So we're talking about 2 Kings 6 and 7. Now, these are your favorite verses. I, they have to be. They should be. Uh, took place in around 848 B.C., as best we know. Uh, this is, uh, you know, warfare uh, back in these days was, you know, they, they, again, they tried to make movies of this time in history, and often they're very glamorized and very gladiator and, and all kinds of um, pretty spectacular scenes. But actually, warfare in this day was boring. 
They would lay siege to a city. They would surround the city, completely cut it off from any outside resources, and then they would wait. People couldn't leave the city without being killed. Nothing could get in to take care of them. So they would begin to perish from the inside. And the invading army just waited long enough until the city gave up, or they were totally, physically incapable of putting up any resistance, and they would be killed or captured. This is what we had. This is where we're going to take a look at this story today. This is the city of Samaria, where the king of Israel and the prophet Elisha were kind of caught when King Ben-Hadad of Syria assembled his whole army, and they went to Samaria and blockaded it. Now, he, how big of an army did he take? It's up there. His whole army. This was unusual. This was unusual. Kings, leaders, generals usually held something in reserve. They did not... It wasn't wise to take your whole army. What if you lost? Then you've got nothing left. But King Ben-Hadad was so angry at the king of Israel, Joram, and at the prophet Elisha that he took his whole army. This is massive. They blockaded Samaria. The shortages caused by the blockade of Samaria became so severe that a donkey's head sold for two pounds of silver and a half a pint of dove manure for two ounces of silver. Now, neither one of those items were on the Hebrew acceptable dietary list. They weren't kosher. They weren't something any Jew should be eating. A donkey's head? Dove manure? This is what had happened to the city. The economy was shot. It was gone. One day, the, the king of Israel, Joram, he went on the walk of the city walls. He was contemplating capitulation. He was contemplating surrender. He had no cards left to play. And he was taking one last look at his city. And this is what he saw. He saw starvation. He saw suffering to an incredible degree. He saw dead, dead people laying in the streets. And the living, in some cases, had been reduced to cannibalism. And one woman shouted up at the king as he's walking on the city wall and told him her story of how she was deceived, treacherously deceived, and her own child was consumed, and the other woman's child was hid. Can you, can, we, we just can't imagine. We just can't. We can try, but starvation will do incredible things to you make you do things you would never, ever believe. So that was the last straw. Then he, Joram, said, may God judge me severely if Elisha 
still has his head by the end of the day. Now, Elisha was sitting in his house with the community leaders. The king sent a messenger on ahead to Elisha, but before he arrived, Elisha said to one of the leaders there in his house, do you realize this assassin intends to cut off my head? He was still talking with them when the messenger approached. And the messenger said, look, the Lord is responsible for this disaster. Why should we continue to wait for help from the Lord? Actually, they blamed Elisha for this disaster. Because Elisha had warned and warned and said, Israel, king, you continue in this vein and God's going to judge you and he's going to bring in an outside army and he's going to do it. So bad news, kill the messenger, right? I found a picture of Elisha. Um, I didn't know it existed, but there it is. Look at that. <laughs> I got it off a of flannel graph. Anybody know what that is? <laughs> Four. Elisha answered, listen to the Lord's words, or the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord said. About this time tomorrow, 24 cups of the best flour will sell for half an ounce of silver in the gateway to Samaria. And 48 cups of barley, that's a lot of barley, will sell for half an ounce of silver. What was Elisha saying? He was saying in 24 hours from right now, the entire economy will be back to normal. This disaster, this human catastrophe will be over. The UN troops could go home, if there had been any there. He was saying that in 24 hours, all of this problem will be gone, completely gone. And people will be paying normal prices, and they won't be eating donkey's heads or dove manure. Well, now, that's easy to say, isn't it? Anybody could say that. So the servant of the king answered the man of God, could this happen even if the Lord poured rain through the windows in the sky? You know, he could not, he had no capacity to believe Elisha's prediction, did he? This, Elisha, look, I got eyes. I see what's happened in our beleaguered city. You're, what you're saying is ridiculous. In other words, not even God can do that. We're too far gone. Elisha replied to the servant, king servant, you will see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat any of it. Another prediction. Little cryptic. You will see what I said is true, but you won't get to eat any of it. All right. So that's the situation in Samaria for that moment. We shift gears to another part of the city. Now, believe it or not, these guys are going to become the heroes of the story. Now, four men with a skin disease were sitting at the entrance of the city gate, and they said to one another, why are we just sitting here waiting to die? 
It's a good question, don't you think? If we go into the city, we'll die of starvation, if nothing else. If we stay here, we'll die. So, come on, let's defect to the Syrian camp. If they spare us, we'll live. If they kill us, well, we were going to die anyway. You got to admire their logic. <laughs> you know, why are we sitting here waiting to die? If we go into the city, they'll probably kill us because they hate lepers. And, well, there's nothing to eat in there anyway, so we're going to die. If we wait here, we die. But you know, the Syrian camp has food. They'll probably kill us, but there's at least a chance they won't. So they started toward the Syrian camp at dusk. Why at dusk? Why didn't they get up and go right then as they were talking about it? Excellent. If you don't want anybody to recognize the fact that you're a leper and then kill you immediately with said spear, you probably want to wait till it's dark. So these guys had some logic, they had some intelligence, and they'd figured out, let's minimize the risk to our plan as much as we possibly can, let's go at dark. Wait for the sun to go down, then let's go. Pretty good. Pretty smart guys. But you know, I'm going to throw in one more slide here that not much has changed in almost... 2,700 years for lepers in the Middle East. We're talking about 850 B.C. And in 1900, this picture was taken, lepers were still living outside the gate of Jerusalem. We hadn't, we hadn't moved very far. No, we hadn't moved at all in our understanding of leprosy or in our care for them. All right. When they reached the edge of the Syrian camp, there was no one there. The Lord had caused the Syrian camp to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a large army. And they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has paid the kings of the Hittites and Egypt to attack us. So they got up and fled, when? At dusk, leaving behind their tents, horses, and donkeys. They left the camp as it was, and they ran for their lives. Well, I did not see that coming. Somehow, God tapped in to the, to the hearing of every Syrian soldier, and he played loudly the sound of an, of an attacking army. So they all heard it. There was no doubt in their minds what they were hearing. They'd heard that sound before. They knew what it meant, and they knew they were unprepared. It was dusk. They were probably just sitting down in their tents or, or wherever they were bivouacked to have a meal. And now, we are unprepared, and here comes an attack. 
So what do you do? They ran for their lives. They ran in every direction they could possibly run to try to get away from the sound of this invading army. And they even thought they knew who it was. It's the Hittites and the Egyptians. So they must have a unique sound when they attack. They didn't take anything with them. They ran for their lives, like you would run out of a burning house. Wow. So here come our four lepers, right? They're coming into camp, waiting to be stopped, waiting to be challenged, to be questioned, and told, you know, who goes there? And they probably had practiced their story and were ready to beg for their lives. But what did they find? When the men with the skin disease reached the edge of the camp, they entered a tent and they had a meal. Okay, stop right there. When's the last time these guys had a meal? Maybe never. They had a meal. They couldn't believe their eyes. Tables filled with food. Good food. This was the king's army. They took some silver, gold, clothes, and went and hid it all. Then they went back and entered another tent. They looted it and went and hid what they had taken. This is really good. This is the entire Syrian army under King Ben-Hadad. How many tents were there? I've asked historians to give me an estimate. They said hundreds upon hundreds. That's what it would take to surround the city of Samaria anyway. They had only seen two. <laughs> there were still hundreds of tents to go, probably just as wonderfully stocked as the first two, where they stole everything they could possibly steal and ran somewhere and buried it, no likely, hid it somewhere, and back into the camp with tent number two, and back to the hiding place, and back to tent number three. Then something happened. Something happened at tent number three. Then they said to one another, it's not right what we're doing. This is a day to celebrate. But we haven't told anyone. So come on. Let's go and inform. Now, we might cast dispersions on these guys' character by saying, why did it take them the third tent to come to this conclusion? Well, let's cut them some slack. They were starving. They knew death was certain. And all of a sudden, they were full on good food. They were rich now beyond their wildest dreams. And they were headed back for more when one of them, at least one of them, said, wait a minute. What we're doing is not good. This is a day to celebrate. We need to tell people what we found. Because you know what? 
they are up there in that city right now and they are dying. And we have news that will change that. Is this beginning to sound similar to when you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ? We have hopelessness and death changed to joy, certainty of great future and life. They realized that what they had found was life-changing, absolutely life-changing. How so? Well, death was certain and soon. They had already figured that out. Remember, they knew that back at the city gate. Despair had turned to utter joy. Nobody expected to find lost property, abandoned property. But they found something that just turned their life completely around. It would never be the same. The poor had instantly become rich, rich beyond understanding. And that's just what you and I are in Jesus Christ. We are rich beyond our possible comprehension. And the New Testament writers that have tried to describe what we have in Christ, tried to help us understand the treasures awaiting us in heaven, they fail. Their vocabulary just runs out. And all they can say is, this is unspeakable joy. Mind has not even thought of what's waiting for us. That's what these guys were experiencing in the physical realm. They knew that keeping this great news to themselves was wrong. Horribly wrong. Everyone they knew was in the same predicament. And they could do nothing to change it, right? Nothing. They had to wait for somebody to come from the outside to help them with their situation. Just like Jesus came from heaven to help us when there was no possibility of us helping ourselves. Knowing the right thing to do and not doing it, it's a bad idea, right? It's sin. When you know the right thing to do in any situation and you don't do it, oh, it isn't a missed opportunity, my friends. It is sin. That's what put Jesus on the cross. It is sin. They were willing to share with everyone, even their enemies. I've already touched on the fact that lepers were shamefully treated, weren't they? They weren't even allowed to, be, to come into the city. Just wait out there and die. They were feared they were hated, they were abused, they were mistreated, and yet here they are saying this news is for everybody. Let's go back up that hill and inform them of this incredible news. Lepers were feared and hated by almost everybody, and even though they had been shamefully treated, as you can tell, I get ahead of my notes a little bit, don't I? But here we go. Do you, do you love, pray for, and support ministries targeting people 
who despise you or who you despise. I was giving a different message in a church one day and I noticed a, a man near the back. You know, you can tell when somebody's tracking with you. I can tell right now whether, you're, whether I think you're tracking with me or not. And I could tell he was not. He was not in agreement with anything I was saying about we need to go to all the nations. We need to go to the tough places. We need to go to the dark places. And he came right up that front center aisle after the message was over, and he said, don't you dare try to challenge my grandson to go and convert a Muslim. I don't care if they go to hell. He was a deacon. Now, I can kind of understand what causes somebody to get to that mindset. He was afraid. He was afraid of what he felt he knew about Muslims and their culture and their goals, and he had painted every Muslim human being with the brush of extremism. And he couldn't get away from that. When I do have the opportunity to speak sometimes in campuses, I'll also have students come up to me and say, I would love to go missions. And when somebody says that, you know there's an unspoken but. I said, okay, what's the problem? And he said, oh, well, my parents would kill me. I said, oh, your mom and dad are not believers? He said, no, my dad's a pastor. I explained to them not too long ago, I'm thinking about missions. And they both said to me, and my mom and dad said, if you waste your life going missions, you're going to pay back every penny of the tuition we've paid for you. When did going missions become wasting your life? You know, um, I uh, found this painting. It's by an unknown artist. Nobody knows, at least I can't find, who, who did this. But it is a painting of this story that we just looked at today. Probably pretty well done. So come on. Let's go and inform those who don't know. I have been right where you are right now. I went to Bible college. During that time frame, I would hear appeals from missionaries. I would hear the logic or the challenge to go missions. And I successfully stiff-armed every one of them and kept them at bay for years. Until finally my last year of graduate school, I was hit in the head with the facts that 95% of everybody in the world who has any kind of Christian training at all, like you're getting, 95% of everyone in the world who's had that lives in the United States of America. That didn't seem right to me. I love this country. My dad's an Air Force officer. Uh, I love this country. But that didn't seem right to me. 
that I had no excuse, no health reason, no money reason, no reason whatsoever to say to God, I can't go. When there's all those unreached people groups out there, what would be your reason to say, oh, God, <laughs> you know, hey, Doug was annoying with his message, but hey, I can't go. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of done pulling punches. I'm old, and I'm going to retire someday soon here, and my opportunities to speak to a group like you will come to an end. People, men and women. Why not Montana Bible College? Why not be the start of a new missions movement that would be something we've never seen since the Haystack prayer meeting at Williams College 250 years ago? Why not here? Why not you? You are rich beyond your wildest dreams spiritually. And there are billions who don't know Christ. Your message could change that for them. I would love to say I challenge you, but I think a better word is I beg you. Consider doing this seriously. Go that direction. If God does not want you there, he's more than capable of stopping your path towards taking the gospel to those that so badly need it. Our lepers here, they could have kept it to themselves. You know, it's almost like nobody would have blamed them on one hand. But they wouldn't have been able to live with that. Not even these guys. How can we live with it? I really like everything I see here. I've told your faculty that I've talked to, you got something special going here at Montana Bible College. You do. The caliber of the students, the caliber of the staff is exceptional. So I, I respect you immensely, but I ask every one of you to consider joining in that un great unfinished task of missions. When Jesus, Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but what's the problem? The workers are too few. We can do something about that. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your patience with us. Your incredible love demonstrated in so many ways, primarily by sending your son to die in our place. Father, thank you that we have this glorious message, that this, this truth that transformed us, and now we have the chance to share it with those who have no clue. Father, give us the boldness. Give us the opportunity. Give us the resources. We know it's not easy, but you can clear the path in front of us. So we pray that you will. We ask this in your Son and our Savior's wonderful name. Amen.